Good morning. It's good to see that we're all upright today after the wedding for some of us. Uh, Wonderful celebration there. This morning we finish up, as Stephanie said, an eight-week series called I Once Was Lost, Communicating the Gospel as an Act of Love. So far we've taken a look at seven of the most foundational passages in Scripture on evangelism, and today we look at an eighth. I pray that you've been asking yourself throughout this series, how can I respond to God's word on evangelism? It was Jesus himself who said, everybody who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise builder who built a house on bedrock. But everybody who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice will be like a a fool who built his house on sand. Friends, we must put the words of Scripture from this sermon series into practice. Otherwise, none of it will have mattered. You will stay the same. You will not grow. Our church will stay the same. It will not grow. And when the day comes for God to judge the world justly, we all will have to give an account for our actions or our inaction. It's true for Stephanie and I also. It can be tempting for preachers to think, well, I've done my part, my work is done. Far from it, the Lord responds. Your work has just begun. Friends, the task of being, saying, and doing the witness, the task of mission and outreach and evangelism, now it's the time for this to pick up steam in Heartland Community Church and in our own lives. The end of this sermon series is not the end of our efforts. It is the beginning. That's because preaching is always the opening act, not the final act. You know how theater works, don't you, or or movies? The opening act of a play is essential for setting the stage. But it's the drama that follows that makes a lasting impression on the audience. The whole drama determines whether people will be cheering for joy at the end or walking away feeling cheated and wanting their money back. We too have an audience. You have an audience. Did you know that? People are observing your life. Non-Christians are watching how you live your life, how you treat others, what you say and the tone you use, and how you act. Non-Christians are the audience, and we are all characters on the stage of God's drama of salvation. So all of our preaching, all our preaching does, it reminds us of the script. It reminds us of our part to play in God's drama. And we all have to to play a part, and and that's what we've been trying to do in the sermon series, is to, to show us the script. But that's just the first step. And it's the easiest step, frankly. What we must now do is we must act according to the script. We must put into practice, like Jesus says, the words of Scripture on evangelism and outreach. We must not only learn about communicating the gospel as an act of love, but finally we must do it. Now that's not how you usually begin a sermon, but I just feel compelled to say that up front. I don't want to preach another good sermon today. I want to say something that brings actual transformation in your life, in the life of this church, and in my life. I'm tired of nice sermons. 
I long for transformation into the image of Christ for myself and for you and for our whole church. Lord, help us all. We need to pray. Lord God, we want to hear your voice. What do you sound like, oh God? Listen closely, your ancient messenger Job says. Listen closely to the rumble of his voice, the roar issuing from his mouth. He looses it under the whole sky, his lightning on earth's edges. After it, a voice roars. God roars with his wondrous voice, and no one can stop it when his voice is heard. He does great things we cannot know. Lord God, prepare us to hear your wondrous voice spoken through your word. We say we want to hear from you, but we can hardly take it when you speak sometimes. So we ask you sincerely to prepare our hearts, minds, and wills to receive your word and then to do it. We are of no help to ourselves. We need you, O God, to open our hearts, to increase the abilities of our minds, and to help us trust you enough to follow through. We need all this, Lord. I need this too. Thank you for your grace. We trust you to give it. Amen. Our script this morning comes from Acts 17, starting with verse 16. Paul, the, uh, one of the main guys you'll read about in the New Testament, close follower of Jesus, he's in the middle of a trip across Europe. And now he's in Athens, Greece. Has anybody been to Athens, Greece by any chance? We got one. All right. The guy who uh, grew up in Germany. We got two. My mother there. All right. He's in Athens, Greece. But you know why he's in Athens? <laughs> he's not a tourist. He's in Athens because he's getting beat up everywhere else. Paul was traveling through Europe, not for tourism, but with the sole intent of making disciples of Jesus. And not everyone appreciated it. He had just been to two other cities in Greece, Thessalonica and Berea. There, he was the guest preacher at Jewish synagogues. Now, he used these opportunities to show the Jewish people from the Hebrew scriptures that Jesus of Nazareth had to suffer and rise from the dead. Then he declared to them, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, which means the Messiah. In other words, this Jesus is the one you've been waiting for all these years. He's the one, the one you've been waiting for to put back the pieces of our broken world and our broken lives. God has come in Jesus, and he's rescuing the world, and he wants to rescue you too, if you'll but trust him. Now some did. Some trusted Jesus at Paul's preaching in the synagogues at these two cities, but not everyone. Those that didn't got angry. In their rage, they searched for Paul with violence in their hearts. And those that did trust Jesus, they protected Paul. They protected him by escorting him all the way to the city of Athens. That's the city in our text today. Now, according to Google Maps, that's 81 hours of walking, not including the ferry ride. So Paul is dropped off in the middle of Athens. His friends have to go home, so they leave him all alone in a city he's never been before. It's a city of great hype in his day, a city known as the great 
intellectual capital of the world. This was the city of the philosophers, Athens. Listen to what happens there. Acts 17, verse 16. While Paul waited for them in Athens, waited for his two friends to arrive, he was deeply distressed to find that the city was flooded with idols. He began to interact with the Jews and Gentile God-worshippers in the synagogue. He also addressed whoever happened to be in the marketplace each day. Certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers engaged him in discussion too. Some said, what an amateur, what's he trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. They said this because he was preaching the good news about Jesus and his resurrection. They took him into custody and brought him to the council on Mars Hill. What is this new teaching? Can we learn about what you're talking about? You've told us some strange things and we want to know what they mean. They said this because all Athenians, as well as the foreigners who live in Athens, used to spend their time doing nothing but talking about or listening to the newest thing. So Paul stood up in the middle of the Council on Mars Hill and said, actually, we're going to stop right there for now. This is the word of the Lord. We'll pick up with his speech in just a while, but we already have some explaining to do. First, I want you to pay attention to Paul's gut reaction to the city of Athens. Paul is what? Did you catch it? He is deeply distressed. And why? Because the city is flooded with idols. And you need to know that this is not the normal reaction when people encounter this tourist destination. Ancient Athens was absolutely stunning, I'm told. It was beautiful to the eye and intriguing to the intellect. Yet Paul enters it, and even though he loves both beauty and learning, he's deeply distressed because the city is flooded with idols. Let me tell you a little bit more about Athens to understand what these idols are all about. Athens was the home of the renowned philosopher Plato, spelled P-L-A-T-O, not like the, the Plato that Lily likes playing with. Plato, he's the guy who introduced to the Western world the idea of higher learning, you know, college. That was his idea all the way back in the fourth century BC. Now, Plato is also the guy that Plato's closet is named after, the second-hand clothing store off of 38, but that's beside the point. Anybody been there? Yes. Uh, true story, they named it Plato's Closet because their son was doing a research project on Plato, and they liked his theories of preservation and reusing things. So, true story, Plato's Closet, yeah. If you remember nothing else of this sermon, please don't remember that. In the 4th century B.C., the philosopher Plato, he founded the first institution of higher learning ever, and he called it the Academy. It was located in Athens, and it was prestigious. And this is where Paul now finds himself, with an opportunity to communicate the gospel of Jesus. The Academy, 
defined the highbrow intellectual culture of the city. So Paul enters this university town, and it's a whole different ball game. It's almost a different sport, this thing called evangelism to the academics. Paul cannot simply say the same things about Jesus in the same way that he said in the synagogue. These PhDs have not soaked in the Old Testament like the Jews. Instead, their worldview, their way of seeing reality, it's been shaped by the great Greek philosophers, philosophers like Plato and Aristotle and Cicero. Do you remember any of those names from from grade school? So Paul, he changes his approach when he's in Athens, and we see that in our text. He changes his change of approach, teaches us something significant for our own practice of evangelism. Our approach ought to change depending on what kind of non-Christians we're talking to. So what kind of non-Christians are we talking to? <laughs> well, there's a wide spectrum of beliefs and practices among non-Christians in America. For our purposes today, let's think in terms of, of two categories. This is very simplistic, but it'll help us, I think, for, for starters. So there's these two types of non-Christians in America. The first type is more like the God-fearers of Paul's day. These non-Christians, they believe in God, and they believe, or they believe in a higher power, but they don't confess Jesus as Lord, and they don't believe God raised him from the dead. I think a lot of non-Christians in our greater Lafayette area fit this category. You know, surveys show that 51% of Americans attend church even just once a month, but 90% of Americans believe in God or a higher power. Isn't that interesting? Nine in ten Americans believe in God or a God or a higher power, but only five in ten attend church even monthly. So, I think a good place to start with non-Christians like this who believe in a higher power but not in Jesus as Lord, a good place to start is to ask simple questions like, so, you believe in a higher power. Tell me, what is that higher power like? What's your concept of God? What do you think of the first century teacher of, of Jesus, of Nazareth? And I encourage us to always bring the conversation back to Jesus, the historical person of Jesus. So that's one type of non-Christian, those who believe in God or a higher power, but aren't so sure about the Jesus thing. There's another type of non-Christian, though, and they are in a very different place. These folks are more like the, the, the people in Athens that Paul is dealing with. These folks, perhaps they've never met another Christian. Perhaps all they've heard about Christianity are the church scandals that Hollywood loves to broadcast. Perhaps their only experience at a, at a church is at a funeral or a wedding. And it all just seems like nice, wishful stuff that religious people use to decorate a formal occasion. These folks, they're more like the people in Athens, the people Paul interacts with on our scripture passage. Their views of the world, they've been shaped by ideas and philosophies that are very different from the ideas of Jesus and the Christian faith. Now they may be trying to do good, but their very definition of good sometimes contradicts Jesus' definition of good. So it's going to require a different approach with someone like this, right? 
more often than not, it's going to require a lot of time and energy working with folks like this. But our job remains the same. By God's grace and the Spirit working through us, we are called to help these folks too take one step closer to Jesus. So that's why Paul is, is deeply distressed when he, ent- when he enters the city of Athens. Yes, its buildings are beautiful, its history is rich, its culture is, is wonderful, but the people are so far from the knowledge of God, the God revealed in Jesus of Nazareth, that is. But we need to note something about his distress. His distress is this gut reaction. But he doesn't respond to that gut reaction by going out to a street corner and telling people about God's judgment. For one, that wouldn't make any sense to these people. (laughs) And for two, Paul knows that the gospel he carries is fundamentally good news of great joy for all people. So it's okay for us to feel deep distress when we encounter non-Christians whose way of life conflicts with ours. It's okay to be disturbed when you come across a non-Christian whose idea of the world's conflict with your own. But we cannot let this distress bleed into our interactions with them. That, if we do that, we come across as judgmental. Paul says that we are not to judge those outside of the church. If we do, they will sense it, and they will think we hate them, and they will give us zero opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with them. When that happens, we've failed as Christ's witnesses. We can only ask for God's mercy and then get on with repentance, changing our patterns of behavior and relating to non-Christians. So Paul's distressed by the people of Athens, their beliefs and their practices, but I have to believe that in his distress, he first turns to God in prayer about these things. I have to believe that in prayer, God gives Paul, he gives Paul Christ's heart of compassion for them. That's what I think explains Paul's response. Paul is careful and wise and gracious in his interactions with them. So our text says that he he goes into the Jewish synagogues as usual, but we don't hear much about how that went. But what's really interesting is the stuff about Paul going to the marketplace each day. This was a place where they'd gather to talk about the, the, the best ideas of the day. Uh, I think the closest parallel would be if you've been to Paris, they have some areas, some cafes and things like that, where they just talk about new ideas and, and, and intriguing things like that. So Paul goes to this marketplace of ideas, and he talks to anyone willing to engage him. He simply engages them in something they already loved to do, intellectual discussion. On a side note, we too can simply engage in something non-Christians already love doing, whatever that is, basketball or card playing or whatever it is. Engage them in something they love to do. In Paul's case, it was intellectual discussion. So that's what he did with the Epicureans. Now the Epicureans, anybody know anything about these folks? Unless you've studied philosophy? Probably not. These are folks... They believed in the gods, you see, but the world and the gods were a long, long way apart from each other. They, they didn't talk to each other, God and people. 
in our day, the closest parallel, I think, would be theism or deism, it would be called. These are people who believe in a higher power. They, they check that box when they're given a survey. They believe in God or a higher power or a divine force, but it's a distant God. Their God is not up close and personable, up close and personal. Their God does not relate to everyday life. So Paul speaks to these people, interacts with them. He also speaks to another group of people called the Stoics. These folks, they followed a school of philosophy that claimed that divinity lay within the present world. It's sort of the opposite of the Epicureans. For, for the others, it was God and the world very, very far apart. For the, for the Stoics, it was God in everything. Now, Stoics believed that this, this divine force, it could be discovered and harnessed for their own benefit. In our day, I think the parallel is probably found in the New Age movement, all the self-help books that spin off from it. So here's what's worth highlighting and all that. I know some of you don't care about philosophy. Here's, what, here's what's worth highlighting. When Paul speaks to these people, he does so intelligently. He speaks to them in a way that connects with what they already think and believe. That's important for us to know. He knew what these people believed. He had studied their schools of philosophy. Before he could tell them about Jesus, he knew that he had to understand something about the furniture of their minds. How did they think? What did they believe? How did they practice? So he does the hard work of listening to Greek philosophy. He does all this because he knows that listening is the best place to start with non-Christians. And I can't emphasize this enough. Listening is the best place to start. As one commentator put it, the first skill that's necessary to be a witness is to use your ears and listen. We should do the same. We should do the hard work of listening to the non-Christians in our circles. Let's learn what they believe, why they believe it, and why they find it compelling to, to believe that way. We, we could learn by reading books that they read, or we could learn just by asking good questions. But we must understand where they're coming from. Without this understanding, we cannot effectively communicate the good news of Jesus to them. Paul is our example here. He understood the people of Athens, and the fruit of his understanding proves it. These are smart people he's interacting with, and, and at the end of their interactions, they were curious at what he had to say about Jesus. Of course, there were some who dismissed him right away, that called him an amateur and, and, and an ignorant person, but others, others were curious. He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, they say, and then they invite Paul, a stranger to the city, to speak at their most prestigious place, their most prestigious lecture hall, if you will. It's called the Areopagus. This was the highest court in the city, and it's set on a rock looking down over this marvelous city of Athens, and there we pick up with Paul's speech, Acts 17, verse 22. Hear the rest of the, the Lord's word. People of Athens, Paul says, I see that you are very religious in every way. As I was walking through town and carefully observing your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. 
What you worship as unknown, I now proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples made with human hands, nor is God served by human hands as though he needed something, since he's the one who gives life, breath, and everything else. From one person, God created every human nation to live on the whole earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their lands. God made the nations so that they would seek him, perhaps even reach out to him and find him. In fact, God isn't far from any of us. In God, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets said, we are his offspring. Therefore, as God's offspring, we have no need to imagine that the divine being is like gold or silver or a stone image made by human skill and thought. But God, God overlooks ignorance of these things in times past. But now God directs everyone everywhere to change their hearts and lives. This is because God has set a day when he intends to judge the world justly by a man he has appointed. God has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some began to ridicule Paul. However, others said, we'll, we'll hear from you about this again. At that, Paul left the council. Some people joined him and came to believe, including Dionysius, a member, a member of the council on Mars Hill, and a woman named Damaris, and several others. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I could expound this brilliant speech from Paul for another hour, probably. Or I could jump straight to the application. Which one would you prefer? Application, application, application. We'll get to the application quickly, but very briefly, here's what I see Paul going on, what's going on in Paul's speech. Paul finds what's similar between his beliefs and theirs. Then he uses that similarity as a starting point. That's his launching pad. At points, he actually affirms what they believe. In fact, he even quotes their own respected philosophers and agrees with what they have to say. <laughs> There's a famous line from the Athenian poet named Eratos. Eratus. Uh, you don't know anyways. You don't care. <laughs> Eratus, probably, I don't know, Eratus. There's a line from this, well, from this poet, and all these well-educated people would have known it. The, the line he uses, he uses in a famous opening invocation to the god Zeus. In him we live and move and have our being, Eratus writes about Zeus, for we too are his offspring. Paul quotes this line from this poet, and he agrees with it in part. However, he reapplies it to the God of the Bible, the God revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. So, he finds similar beliefs and practices that, 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 that they have and, and that are similar with what he believes. And that's his place to start in conversation with non-Christians. But it's not the end game. 
Paul starts with the points of connection, but he ends by sharing about his own beliefs in Jesus. We too need to be on the lookout for points of connection with non-Christians. What do we share in common? What, what beliefs or practices do we share in common? Is it the Ten Commandments? Is it that Jesus was a good person, that he taught things that were, were good for us to follow? Then let's start there. But eventually we move on to the specifics that we do in fact believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, which proved that he was God in the flesh. All right, so on to a more specific application, and we'll close with this. There's a helpful little book called I Once Was Lost by evangelism gurus Dan Everts and Doug Schaup. Both of these guys, they've worked in college ministry through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship for decades in two, in two different locations. And, and what they do for this book is they interview 2,000 people, 2,000 people who were skeptics when they came to college. They, were, 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 they didn't believe in, in, in Jesus. And during their time in college, they became Christians. So they interviewed 2,000 of these folks, and they began to discover a pattern among them, a pattern of what took place for them to change their minds about Jesus. Now, all of these individuals, there were unique parts of their story, but there was a general path that all of them went through, and they were surprised to discover this, this common path. And, and th they say that the goal for us, and I agree with this, the goal for us is to know where our non-Christian friends are along the path. Once we know this, we can help them take the next step closer to Jesus. So here are the five steps toward faith in Jesus that these 2,000 skeptics turned Jesus followers uh, talked about. The authors call them the five thresholds of conversion, five things they had to get over before they could believe in Christ. Number one, the first step toward faith is simply trusting a Christian. Skeptics must first trust a Christian. That's the first threshold to, cr to cross, and depending on one's history with Christians, it can be a lot harder than we think. If we're interacting with a non-Christian and there's no trust, inviting them to church or handing them a Bible won't do any good. What we're called to do to them is to represent Christ in Christ's love with such authentic, self-sacrificial love so that they learn to trust a Christian. Not everyone will, sadly. Many that Paul interacted with in Athens, they never made it to a place of trust. They called him an amateur or a babbler. <laughs> but nevertheless, we're called to the task of building trust with non-Christians. The second step after these folks trust a Christian is to become curious about spiritual things and about God. This second step, it's a vague curiosity. They're looking for something, but they don't know what it is. We see this in verse 18 of our text, actually. While some people made fun of Paul, others were a little curious. It's their curiosity that led them to invite Paul to speak to the crowds. What can we do to spark the curiosity of our non-Christian neighbors? I think of things like VBS, and I think of things like the annual picnic with the bouncy house, and maybe even things like 
dancing hard at a wedding when some non-Christians think you're not allowed to have fun as Christians. These sort of things inspire curiosity, and that's the next step after trust is built with these folks, to inspire curiosity about God and spiritual things. The third step toward Jesus is that these non-Christians must become open to change. Y'all know how much we like change, don't you? This is often the most difficult step for non-Christians, especially for those who, who think their lives are relatively fine. We Christians, we often underestimate just how much of a leap this is for non-Christians to open up to change. I think God wants us to develop a deeper compassion for how hard this next step is, to put ourselves in their shoes and to experience empathy for them. This is what it means to love our non-Christian friends, I think. Too often we think, if they but hear the gospel, they certainly will believe. You would think as a Christian, and you would hope, but sadly that's often not the case. So we see in our text that many were curious to hear more about Paul, but only some were able to cross threshold number three, opening up to change. There are two more thresholds to cross for the non-Christian. The fourth is to become a seeker. Now this is different than becoming curious. Sometimes they look the same, but becoming curious is more of a vague curiosity about spiritual things. Becoming a seeker is an intentional act of pursuing Jesus and reading the Gospels for the first time. So what they discovered in these 2,000 non-Christians who became Christians, what they discovered is that after they opened themselves up to change, to change their way of thinking, to change their way of life, sometimes to, to change their friends, to break up with a boyfriend or girlfriend, a very hard thing to do for folks in college, for anyone. After they opened up to change, these folks became seekers and they read the Gospels for the first time. They seriously considered the claims of Jesus. And it's an exciting thing to interact with a seeker. They are hungry to know more. They are hungry for the Word. It's like watching spring come to life. The grass turns green. The early flowers begin to bloom and the trees begin to bud. That's what's happening in their hearts once they become close to the person of Jesus. They're, they're seekers. They're seeking out Jesus. That's a beautiful thing. Now, these are the folks in our passage who tell Paul, we will hear you again about these things. And then the seekers, the true seekers, they, they join Paul's company, having opened up to change, and they are passionately pursuing truth. So that's the fourth step toward Jesus. And after that step happens, uh, something quite marvelous takes place. Finally, spring has blossomed. The skeptic turns seeker crosses the final threshold and enters the kingdom of God. But some of them joined Paul and became believers, including Dionysius, Demaris, and others. Friends, on that day, there is more joy in heaven than what? <laughs> than a beautiful bride on her wedding day. Heartland Community Church, all 
all of the work and the prayers and our efforts with non-Christians, this is what we're doing it for. To see a beautiful bride on her wedding day rejoice at coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. One who was made by God, but apart from God for so long, reuniting once more in this act of love. That's what we're doing this for, my friends. Not all of the people we interact with, non-Christians, will, will, will make, this, make it this far, but some will. And like a bride on her wedding day, after all the preparation and planning and counseling, and after all the hard work, we will experience the joy of seeing God united in covenant love to our non-Christian friends. Our friends who once were lost, but now are what? But now are found. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us pray.